We're in 1 Samuel chapter 14. If you want to turn your Bibles there, we'll be in the middle of it. <clears throat> it's been one of those weeks. I should have known whenever I wrote lots of my sermon, I, I think it was either Tuesday or Wednesday, and thinking, wow, this is in the bag. <laughs> it's, it wasn't. <laughs> I was going to wrestle with it. It wasn't done. But my wrestling with sermons, I think, comes from feelings of guilt or inadequacy. See, the author James in the New Testament tells us that not many should aspire to be teachers because we'll be held to a closer measuring rod, we'll be judged accordingly. And teachers are, I should say, and whether it be, for me, whether it be personal struggles and sins or maybe guilt over past sins or whatever the case may be, Sometimes I get writer's block and the feelings start piling on. What do I do to get through this? Because that's very holy to think about. What do I need to confess to God? What penance do I need to do to make sure that when I write my sermons or open my mouth on Sunday, Lord, that your voice is going to be heard, right? Don't hold those over me accountable for the struggle and the time wasting and whatever else I'm doing when I should be writing a great message. Maybe you're not a pastor, but I wonder if you've ever been there, if you've ever felt convicted similarly. Maybe you feel guilty, you feel distracted, and you keep, or I should say you feel guilty and it is distracting. And so you keep busy, hoping that the guilt goes away. Maybe you keep minimizing, deceiving yourself. I'm not guilty. And if I am guilty, someone else is really to blame because my spouse makes me blank. My job makes me blank. My neighbors make me, my neighborhood makes me, my country, my political party. And there's always somebody else to blame but yourself. Conveniently. And so you keep busy, you keep doing self-talk. And then sometimes you keep doing penance. Look what I'm doing. I'm, I'm writing wrongs. God, get off my back. And you perform. <laughs> Usually if this is the route you're taking, penance, you perform most for the party that you think either you offended or sometimes the party that you think offended you. You might think that uh, they don't like you, so you're going to perform for them. If this is your spouse... Stop nagging me, spouse, and then to get that happen, you perform for them. Usually it's for selfish reasons because this is your aim. I'm doing all of this for you, and if anyone should feel guilty in this relationship, it's you. Christians are best at doing this for God. Being distracted, keeping busy, and doing penance because you don't want to confront what God has confronted you about. Because that's what I do, I'll be honest. I don't have time to talk about this, weigh this, consider this, because if you'll notice, God, I'm doing all these things to please you, so don't single out the problem that you and I have. Because there's, there's going to be so much more good that impresses you. <laughs> that's what I hope is, that's what I hope that will take place. Saying to God, you'll forget what you're pointing out here. You'll forget about the closet I want to keep closed. You'll forget about the uncomfortable conversation you want to have with me? You ever been there? No, it's just me? Okay, good. I'll walk out. You're all holier than I am. Good. No, we catch up, though, in 1 Samuel 14. And if you remember last week what happened, 
The context is this. The Israelites were at war against the Philistines. The Israelites were outnumbered and outarmed, if I could use it that way. Only two people we were told had weapons, King Saul and his son Jonathan. The prophet Samuel had told King Saul that Samuel needed to do a sacrifice on a particular day. The Lord would bless it. Israel would have the victory. But the numbers and the weapons. And King Saul did the sacrifice himself. And Samuel said to Saul, basically my own paraphrase, this shows what kind of man you are. You and your family have lost the kingdom. Last week, since Saul was sitting on his rear end, sweating beads and having lost Samuel's support, we saw his son Jonathan and his armor bearer single-handedly, with God's direction, attack a garrison at a pass called Michmash. It was two against 20, and the two Israelites won. And the newfound victory rallies Saul and the entire army to charge the Philistines. And that's kind of where we're at now as we pick it up in the middle of 1 Samuel 14 and actually the middle of verse 23. Some of your Bibles might naturally separate this. The CSB subheading that splits verse 23 says Saul's rash oath. And so we're going to pick it up, read there, and invite you to stand one more time in honor of hearing and reading the Lord's word. We're going to read verses 24 through, or middle of 23 through verse 46. Just read it here. We read, the battle extended beyond Beth-Avon, and the men of Israel were worn out that day, for Saul had placed the troops under an oath. The man who eats food before evening, before I have taken vengeance on my enemies, is cursed, so none of the troops tasted any food. Everyone went into the forest, and there was honey on the ground. When the troops entered the forest, the saw, they saw the flow of honey, but none of them ate any of it because they feared the oath. However, Jonathan had not heard his father make the troops swear the oath. He reached out with the end of the staff he was carrying and dipped it into the honeycomb. When he ate the honey, he had renewed energy. Then one of the troops said, Your father made the troops solemnly swear, The man who eats food today is cursed, and the troops are exhausted. Jonathan replied, my father has brought trouble to the land. Just look at how I have renewed energy because I have tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the troops had eaten freely today from the plunder they took from their enemies. Then the slaughter of the Philistines would have been much greater. The Israelites struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash all the way to Ajalon. Since the Israelites were completely exhausted, they rushed to the plunder, took sheep, goats, cattle, and calves, slaughtered them on the ground, and ate meat with blood still in it. Some reported to Saul, look, the troops are sinning against the Lord by eating meat with the blood still in it. Saul said, you have been unfaithful. Roll a large stone over here at once. He then said, go among the troops and say to them, let each man bring me his ox or his sheep. Do the slaughtering here, and then you can eat. Don't sin against the Lord by eating meat with the blood in it. So every one of the troops brought his ox that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first time he had built an altar to the Lord. Saul said, let's go down after the Philistines tonight and plunder them until morning. Don't let even one remain. Do whatever you want, the troops replied. But the priest said, let's approach God here. So Saul inquired of God, should I go after the Philistines? Will you hand them over to Israel? But God did not answer him that day. Saul said, all you leaders of the troops, come here. Let's investigate how this sin has occurred today. Surely as the Lord lives who saves Israel, even if it is because of my son, Jonathan, he must die. Not one of the troops answered him. 
So he said to all Israel, You will be on one side, and I and my son Jonathan will be on the other side. And the troops replied, Do whatever you want. So Saul said to the Lord, God of Israel, Why have you not answered your servant today? If the unrighteousness is in me or in my son Jonathan, Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if the fault is in your people Israel, give Thummim. Jonathan and Saul were selected, and the troops were cleared of the charge. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was selected. Saul commanded, me, commanded him, Tell me what you did. Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the end of the staff I was carrying. I am ready to die. Saul declared to him, May God punish me and do so severely if you do not die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, Must Jonathan die? He, he accomplished such a great deliverance for Israel. No, as the Lord lives, not a hair on his head will fall to the ground, for he worked with God's help today. So the people redeemed Jonathan, and he did not die. Then Saul gave up the pursuit of the Philistines, and the Philistines returned to their own territory. Father, we thank you again for your word. Uh, You have placed every book, every story page in your word for our edification. Father, all of it should point us and direct us to Jesus. We pray that as we read and study today that you would strengthen our faith, that you would humble and soften our hearts, that we would open the closets we don't want to open, that we would deal with the sin that you're trying to confront us about. And not because we enjoy doing that stuff, but because it will make life easier with you as time goes on. And it will make life ultimately easier for us, and it will free us up to serve and love you better and serve and love others better. Help us not to be selfish and hinder ourselves from others. Father, would you say what it is that you desire? Would you get me out of the way? And would you open up hearts and minds to receive your word and uh, respond accordingly? In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. may be seated. Don't you love it whenever you have some helpers to help you with a task and they end up doing better than you do? Don't you love that? They outdo you at your own job. I wrestle with this somewhat. Sure, I've had a few occasions where somebody's made comments about preachers that preach better than me and woe is me, blah, blah, blah. But for whatever reason, I seem to really feel like that or where it bothered me really most was my experience working for Pepsi and Frito-Lay. Now, first, I was I was the better worker because I'm awesome, right? No, I worked for Pepsi in Moscow and I was the primary guy stocking stores, three to five stores in the Moscow Pullman area. And I worked Monday through Friday and I had the weekend off. And while I was there for maybe a year, literally three weekend guys were cycled in and out because they all stunk miserably. <laughs> and uh, all of them would leave this mess for me on Mondays. I would have my own, okay, fill here, fill here, stack the shelves and what pallets here. Everything's neat and tidy. Well, I would come there and I felt like a tornado would go through and, you know, some 20 ounce cases would be scattered everywhere and didn't make any sense. And so anyway, and I, and I had even worked on a few weekends. So I knew what to expect in terms of weekend busyness in college towns. And so I knew, hey, if I can do this, you can do it. But they didn't do it. So I moved here and I eventually landed a job with potato chips, Frito-Lay. And it was still taking stuff out of the back room of a store and putting it on the aisle. But to this day, whenever I help the potato chip guy, I just, for whatever reason, cannot fill the shelves like the boss does. 
Now it's reversed. The bags on the aisle don't look as clean, crisp, or well presented. I don't know if he shoe shines them, what he does. Um, the rows of chips are sometimes staggered and off whenever I do it. And I especially hated working on weekends because then the roles were reversed uh, from whenever I was the Pepsi guy. And the Frito-Lay boss guy would sometimes text me out of the blue sarcastically on Monday and say, thanks for burying the close date chips. It really helps. So I don't have to rotate. Oh, I do, you know. Saul's son, Jonathan, just one-upped his dad. Saul has had a bad war against the Philistines. He lost the kingdom, kind of a miserable day for him. And his son just miraculously, with strong character, strong faith, almost single-handedly changed the tide of the war. Here's what I'm thinking, since we know from later on in the book just how Saul is. I think here is Saul jealous of his son. Saul is jealous of his son's glory, jealous that his son is leading and showing king quality more than he is. And so after Jonathan and his armor bearer took down the garrison and the Philistines are going crazy, Saul sent his men in. And now this is what we hear. The battle extended beyond Beth-Avon. Wow, you can't see that. But there is Michmash right there. There's Beth-Avon, so a little northeast of that. Where the tide of war changed. That's where the tide of war changed was Michmash. And the men of Israel were worn out that day for Saul had placed the troops under an oath. The man who eats food before evening, before I have taken vengeance on my enemies is cursed. So none of the troops tasted any food. Here's what I think is happening. Saul's trying to own the war. That's what I feel like. He saw Jonathan show courage and faith, showed himself a a hero, an impressive one, taking down the garrison. Now Saul wants to take the glory back from the war. This war better go down with Saul being the hero. Yeah, 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 my son did that great battle at Michmash, but hey, I'm religious. I'm making an oath before God. No food for anyone until I completely take vengeance on my enemies. They will be sorry they ever bothered us. They thought Jonathan's wrath was fearful. Wait until me and my army obliterate them. Now, the idea of the oath here is actually Saul trying to curry favor with God. People can fast personally, and Jesus says that when people fast personally and privately, it's best to do it privately so you're not showing off to other people. And religious people are upset by that because that's what they're doing it for. <laughs> they're, they're kind of saying, hey, look at me. I'm not eating because I'm so holy. That's not what curry favors with God. Rather, it's to be private. Saul is selfishly trying to curry favor by forcing everybody else not to eat. He's saying, I'm so holy, God, that we're all not eating. So grant us victory in this. Show us your power in a bunch of weak famished soldiers. Saul is the one trying to make the terms here with God. Oaths are not light things. This is King Saul. After King Saul will come King David and then David's son, Solomon. He wrote a book called Ecclesiastes. And in Ecclesiastes, he writes about oaths and he says, when you make a vow to God, don't delay fulfilling it because he does not delight in fools. Seems very obvious. (laughs) Fulfill what you vow. Better that you do not vow than you vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth bring guilt on you and do not say in the presence of the messenger that it was a mistake. 
Why should God be angry with your words and destroy the work of your hands? And in fact, Jesus, when he's teaching, he just takes it farther and says, don't, don't make oaths. <laughs> just let your yes be yes and your no, no. Have enough integrity to never lie. Always tell the truth. And instead of making proud declarations on what you plan to fulfill, just shut up and fulfill it. <laughs> Jesus didn't you shut up, but, you know, that sort of thing. Apparently, Jonathan didn't hear this oath. He could have been already in Michmash. He could have been a part on the battlefield. We don't know why. But Jonathan didn't hear, and we read this next. Everyone went into the forest. Forests are places where battles were usually fought. And there was honey on the ground because Phil had a bee yard in that forest. (laughs) Apparently, no. When the troops entered the forest, they saw the flow of honey, but none of them ate any of it because they feared the oath. Interesting. So the army people with Jonathan already know about the oath. However, Jonathan had not heard his father make the troops swear the oath. He reached out with the end of his staff he was carrying, dipped it into the honeycomb. As a soldier, Jonathan wants to keep heading forward. The quickest way to get some honey Just put his staff in and eat it that way. When he ate the honey, he had renewed energy. Then one of the troops said, Your father made the troops solemnly swear. The man who eats this or eats food today is cursed. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> After the fact. <laughs> Perhaps Jonathan had some seniority probably over the rest of the men. Maybe none of them thought to address our commander. He must have already known. It also could be once that Jonathan did this, they were hoping that he might give a directive that countered his father because look at how the troop ended. He says, and the troops are exhausted. (laughs) Jonathan, with honey in your mouth. (laughs) Verse 29, Jonathan replied, my father has brought trouble to the land outright criticism of his father. Now, some wonder leading up to this engagement, this battle, or maybe it's because of Jonathan's heroics at Michmash, that Saul and his son probably already have some animosity that's only going to grow when Jonathan befriends David and David comes into the picture. Jonathan uses a key word here that is present in the books of Joshua and First and Second Kings as well. He says his father has brought trouble to the land. Now, the most vivid picture of trouble in the land, I would say, is in the book of Joshua. Joshua is the leader after Moses. This is years before Saul, before Samuel, before all the judges who lead Israel. Joshua is leading Israel to at first conquer the land that becomes the nation. And they come to this city, uh, spelled A-I, pronounced I, And they're defeated. And Joshua is crying out to God, why were we defeated? God tells them that there's a sinner in the army, a person that's doing something they shouldn't do. And eventually Joshua discovers uh, one of his troops named Achan is responsible. He's making the army Achan. That's probably why his name is that. No, I don't know. He took some spoils from the previous battles he shouldn't have. They had all been instructed by God to not take any spoils. After Achan confesses, the word Joshua uses is this, why have you brought us trouble? Today the Lord will bring you trouble. Now the vivid part comes when Joshua and all Israel stoned Achan to death. That's for another sermon for another day. I just want you to go to bed tonight thinking about that question. The point is this word trouble carries no doubt. The author of 1 Samuel knew no doubt much weight. Jonathan is putting a mark on his dad saying, he's an Achan. (laughs) 
He's a, a trouble, a disaster for Israel. Now, let's be honest. It was a dumb oath. I mean, I'm just going to say it. From what we could tell, God was not in it. Saul just thought for himself, who knows why, maybe withholding food from my army would be a good way to garner God's power for my own glory, because that's always good. Jonathan lays out how stupid his father's plan was, and it's as obvious as it sounds. Just look at how I have renewed energy because I tasted of this little honey. How much better if the troops had eaten freely today from the plunder they took from their enemies, then the slaughter of the Philistines would have been much greater. Isn't that what Saul wanted to do anyways? He wanted to obliterate them. A great slaughter of the Philistines. But instead, Saul's great idea is going to lead to some more trouble. We read on to verse 31. And the Israelites struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash all the way to Ajalon. So... That's where Ajalon is. This is Migmash. There was Bethaven, and now they're going all the way to Ajalon. <clears throat> so the Philistines are actually probably headed to their homeland. They're on the Mediterranean Sea. And since the Israelites were completely exhausted, I wonder why, Saul, verse 32, they rushed to the plunder, took sheep, goats, cattle, and calves, slaughtered them on the ground, and ate meat with blood still in it. Now, this was certainly a fence in the law, the law that Israel followed, handed down to them by God, declared by Moses, strictly said that they should not eat food that still had blood in it. But the Israelites are so hungry, they hadn't eaten anything all day. They'd been chasing Philistines all over ancient Palestine, that when the sun went down, that's when the Jewish day was done, the oath was lifted. They couldn't hunt, kill, dress, and cook fast enough. Some reported to Saul, look, the troops are sinning against the Lord by eating meat with the blood still in it. Saul said, and this is really rich, you have been unfaithful. Now, who's saying that? Saul. The king who had been told by an actual authorized prophet, Samuel, earlier in the war, Saul, you have been foolish. (laughs) You have not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you. It was at this time the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel. But now your reign will not endure. The Lord has found a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people, because you have not done what the Lord commanded. But now Saul knows. Saul's a super holy dude. He's got this all figured out. Sure, the army is breaking the law, and so he hands out his judgment. You've all been unfaithful. He says to the army, that he personally withheld food from. Roll a large stone over here at once. Saul continues. He then said, Go among the troops and say to them, Let each man bring me his ox or his sheep, do the slaughtering here, and then you can eat. Don't sin against the Lord by eating meat with the blood in it. So every one of the troops brought his ox that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first time he had built an altar to the Lord. As a side note, it would be the last time as well. Here's what's going on in my mind, and here's why I have a sarcastic, condescending attitude preaching this. I've been here. Not exactly here, but I've been here. You've been here. Saul's got a huge elephant in the room that he's ignoring. It's a huge, huge elephant. I just named the elephant Samuel's declaration that Saul shouldn't even be king. And I think it's eating at Saul. Saul knows that Samuel is right. Samuel's the guy who anointed him as king to begin with. Samuel is the prophet. 
Saul knows this, but what Saul is doing is ignoring that and instead trying all these religious declarations as a means to make himself feel better and look better. I have some spiritual authority. I'll make some oaths to God. I know when the law has been violated. I'll hand out spiritual judgments. Me and God are good when they're not. They're not. This happens all the time, sadly, in churches and Christian circles. A person gets convicted about their sins and immediately things like, Judge not lest you be judged. Or get the plank out of your own eye before you talk about sawdust in my eye. Or where do you get the audacity to begin to tell me about my problems when what about your problems? And sometimes what people do is like what Saul does here. Maybe they accept the conviction because they have to, because it's a spiritual authority or a friend or a teacher or a pastor they really do respect. But then they'll fake and flaunt and pretend to be really holy. Right? Like in future gatherings, especially when the guy who convicted him is there, they'll start talking about Bible verses and topics and sound really holy, really studied, because, hey, they got a safe face. I'll make that pastor, that leader, forget he ever confronted me about my sin that I've still yet to repent of because I'm super holy. I've seen this so many times. I've done this. And the point is this. When you or I have been confronted about the sin, then we need to confront the sin. We need to own it. None of this, yeah, Kevin, but half the junk they pull out, we're not talking about them. (laughs) If they're right, they're right. And if you're guilty, you're guilty. Saul is guilty, and instead of repenting, he's just trucking on through, playing king as if everything's okay. I'll show Samuel. I'll show God. I'll prove them I'm so holy. God's going to be like, you know, I think I made a mistake in taking the kingdom from you, Saul. Will you forgive me? That's the attitude. It's presumptuous. It's foolish, and it's what Saul's doing. Well, now that the people are refreshed and, and were reprimanded by holy pastor Saul, Saul wants that glory for himself, He has a plan, since all of his plans have been very successful thus far. Verse 36 says, Let's go down after the Philistines tonight and plunder them until morning. Don't even let one remain. He's going to wipe the Philistines off the face of the map. Saul's going to go down in the history books, and hopefully he's going to regulate his son Jonathan to just a footnote. Do whatever you want, the troops replied. They're fat and happy. They finally ate. But the priest, and this is likely... A guy named Priest Ahijah, who was mentioned at the first part of the chapter, 1 Samuel 14. He's a part of the rejected family of Eli, so he's likely a rejected priest. But he finally has a good idea, and he says, let's approach God here. Oops, forgot about that. Saul did. Good idea. Probably should do that. Yeah, Yeah, let's go ahead. Verse 37. So Saul inquired of God, should I go after the Philistines? Will you hand them over to Israel? But God did not answer him that day. Wonder why. Saul has his ideas as to why God is silent, and it's rather ironic. He says in verse 38, all you leaders of the troops, come here. Let's investigate how this sin has occurred today. Saul, great high priestly, pastorly, super spiritual authority Saul, has decided that the reason God did not answer him is because there's sin in the camp. There's an Achan in their midst. Jonathan actually agrees with Saul. (laughs) He mentioned that earlier, that there is trouble in the land, but I don't think Saul and Jonathan agree on who the troublemaker is. Verse 39, as surely as the Lord lives who saves Israel, Saul is making another oath with his big mouth again. Even if it is because of my son Jonathan, he must die. Not one of the troops answered him. Probably because they knew. 
In fact, it was Jonathan who violated Saul's first oath. But I think the troops have more brains than Saul, and they're protecting the only sane one in the king's family. So Saul's going to have to use some other means. Verse 40, so he said to all Israel, you will be on one side. I and my son Jonathan will be on the other side. The troops replied again, do whatever you want. So Saul separated those gathered. He's going to, he and Jonathan on one side, troops on the other. And he continues, verse 41. So Saul said to the Lord, God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant today? If the unrighteousness is in me or in my son Jonathan, Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if the fault is in your people, give Thummim. Urim and Thummim are spoken about seven times in the Bible. The last time they are used by Saul unsuccessfully, I should say, in 1 Samuel 28. Most people think that these are divination, divination stones and actually the most... Most people go to the passage we're in right now to get as much information as they can about it. They were apparently acceptable by God in that time. Some have suggested two stones, one for positive, one for negative. We don't know what the priest did, how answers were selected, um, or, or whenever no answer could be given. In 1 Samuel 28, it says it didn't work. What we do know is that especially in the New Testament, the New Covenant, We have a relationship with the Holy Spirit that those in the Old Testament lacked. We have God in us, giving us direction and counsel and making known his will to those who seek him. As for Saul, God apparently seems to be answering him here through the stones. As Jonathan and Saul were selected, the troops were cleared of the charge. Then Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan, and Jonathan was selected. Now, as I've been preaching this, I don't know if you've caught on, but I've been making Saul to be the one making dumb mistakes. I mean, I don't know if you could tell through all my sarcasm. He instituted an enforced fast over all his men. While he did it, I'm sure in his mind, to try to get God's attention and force God's hand to empower his army to attack the Philistines, we were not told anything about God's reaction to the fast. Uh, The last thing we've heard about God's thoughts concerning Saul himself was God's removing him from the kingdom. Saul then chastised his men for breaking the law about eating animals with blood, in which I'm assuming his men have been only doing that because they were so ravenously hungry because Saul had made him not eat anything in the first place. Again, apparently Jonathan was unaware of his father's ban on the food. And so it strikes me, this does. It's not wrong or or super surprising that God's being honest. That's not what I'm talking about. But it strikes me that after supposedly divining with the Lord, the Lord can almost condemns Jonathan. I mean, Saul's guilty here. I agree with Jonathan. Saul's the trouble in the land. But it's rather foolish of me to disagree with God. So God, for his own purposes, perhaps most because it's true in the specific question that Saul is asking. Saul is asking, who broke my stupid oath? God singles out Jonathan. Yep, it's true. He's the guy who took the honey. But here's the reason I think he did so. We read, Saul commanded him, tell me what you did. Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the end of my staff I was carrying. I'm ready to die. Some even see this as sarcasm on Jonathan's part. Go ahead, kill me for eating honey. Go, go for it. Saul declared to him, may God punish me and do so severely if you do not die, Jonathan. But then the people said to Saul, must Jonathan die? He accomplished such a great deliverance for Israel. No, as the Lord lives, not a hair on his head will fall to the ground, for he worked with God's help today. 
So the people redeemed Jonathan and he did not die. So here's my first thought. Look at how the people ignored and countered the king. (laughs) This is kind of a big deal. The troops who had been saying, do whatever you want. But then a second thought occurred to me that this is Israel's first king. And Israel's kind of new with this king business. And back when Israel was ruled by judges, many Israelites did, or so the author of that book told us, what was right in their own eyes. So it could be that the Israelites are used to ignoring, changing, arguing with demands or edicts by their rulers. But it's interesting to me too, did you hear that? No, as the Lord lives, not a hair on his head will fall to the ground. That was in verse 45. So said the people concerning Jonathan. That was their invoking of God's name to refute what Saul had just said in verse 39. He said, as surely as the Lord lives who saves Israel, even if it is because of my son, he must die. Well, Saul apparently still has a heart for his son. He's not going to refute against an entire army seeking to spare his own son. And we're told about this wonderful conclusion to this whole experience in verse 46. Um, sorry, but then Saul gave up the pursuit of the Philistines and the Philistines were, uh, returned to their own territory. All this for nothing is what it feels like. Sure, the Philistines are back home and the immediate threat is gone, but no mass obliteration. An oath of no food over his army for nothing. A vow to kill the one who broke the oath and literally, thank God, he didn't follow through on. And a Philistine army he was chasing down to obliterate Escaping from his hands. You know what I think? Saul's guilty. He's been trying to stay busy and trying to do penance. He's guilty because the kingdom has been taken from him and he knows it. He knows what Samuel said is true. But then like all of us, he begins to say, but no, it can't be true. He's got a crown on. He's got an army so what's Saul doing? He's doubling up on his religious work. He's making oaths. He's, he's catching people in their breaking of the law. And he's sounding really preachy and nice sounding words because he's going to show Samuel and he's going to show God that he is still king material. He's still a believer. You know, there's going to be a second time that Samuel shows up to Saul. We're going to see it next week. And I don't know if this was a second chance or what it was without studying for it yet. But Samuel's explaining to Saul why he lost the kingship and Samuel says this, does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice and to pay attention is better than the fat of rams. We may not burn offerings and sacrifices, but sometimes we still have Saul's heart. Some of us, we just get busy and we do penance, but all it is is ignoring what we know needs to happen. It's so weird. The gospel is so easy and it's so hard. The gospel is so easy because it's this. You and I don't need to do anything. Saul Saul doesn't need to do anything. He literally has to do nothing to get right with God. Here's what I mean by that. Receive, submit, yield to Samuel. If he said to Samuel, you're right. I did disobey when I didn't let you do the sacrifice. I didn't do what God told me to do. I was wrong. I hope God forgives me. I'll take whatever consequences what he deems fit. That's all that God wants. 
That's easy. That's a lot easier than sweating, fretting, worrying. I'm going to show him. I'm going to show Samuel. I'm going to be the best holy person ever. I don't need no stinking Samuel. I'm going to outdo my son. What a miserable, busy life. That's why the gospel's so hard, too. Yieldedness, confession, humility, and honesty with oneself. Saul would have to admit a few things that are true and hard to accept about himself. Some of you, here's what I, here's what I fear. You do a lot of things in the Christian life out of guilt. Got to read my Bible, got to pray, got to go to church, got to perform, because then God will love me. Good luck. A prophet of God opened his ministry saying this. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. And then the prophet said this about our, that is the believer's, attempts at righteousness. He says, doesn't say that. I'll just, you're going to have to go without it, I guess. He says in Isaiah 64, 6, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. The prophet of God, Isaiah, sees himself as unclean and he sees all of our righteousness as filthy rags because the gospel, the life with God is this. He doesn't save us and he doesn't love us because of who we are. He loves us because of who he is. And what God wants to do with Saul and what he wants to do with you is have it out about this sin problem. That's all that God wants. No charades, no trying to impress him with bad religion. Just come clean. Seek forgiveness. Because Jesus is always willing to receive sinners for forgiveness. He's always willing for that. He's not willing for us to double down on our efforts, white-knuckle it, and seek to impress everybody with our penance. Let's pray. Father, many of us have thought that this relationship with you is performance-based. That we just do better, try harder. We show everybody, including you, just how holy we are. and Maybe we'll be fit and ready for heaven. Father, whenever you came to earth and somebody approached Jesus and said, Good teacher, even there Jesus said, Why do you call me good? Nobody is good but God. Father, you're not out for good people. You're out for bad people. And lucky for you, the whole world is full of them. But Father, the beauty of the gospel is, is that you sent your son to die for us because he was good enough that he paid the price for our sins. So Father, if any of us are still trying to live in that culture and that feeling, that mindset of, man, I hope I'm good enough for God. Can we just say right now, I know I'm not, but Jesus is which is why I cling to Jesus. And whenever we cling to Jesus, we find rest that we're no longer trying to live to impress you or impress everybody else, but we can be open and honest about our sins. We can seek forgiveness, and then you can change us from the inside out. All we need to do is let you do your work in our lives. Father, we thank you for that. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.